Uh, I do want to say uh, thank you to Tom, Bruce, and Melissa Walker for going, but uh, the report that I got back this week was that our youth minister does a phenomenal job. Um, I'm Jordan, where'd you go? I'm proud of you. Uh, that is, is a great report for a pastor to hear back from camp. Michael, the Jordan is made for this. This, this is, he is in his element. He is pastoring the kids. He's leading the kids. So we got a good one, and I'm glad you're here, Jordan. Take your Bibles and turn to not any of the verses that are going to be on the screen. There we go. Uh, not any of those verses. Uh, I continued to work on this message after I'd already sent the slides. The verse I want you to turn to is Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14. Now, this message is unlike most of what I preach. Um, I don't like topical sermons. And this is about as topical as you can get. Now, a topical sermon for me is defined as one that has a topic and we hit a bunch of verses talking about that topic. I don't like those kinds of sermons. I don't like to preach those kinds of sermons. But this sermon lends itself to that. It's pretty much the only way I could figure out to do it. Uh, so our springboard verse, in reality, is that Acts 2, 5, and 9 through 11. A uh, passage we've already preached through as we look at uh, the church in Acts, what that looks like, what, how we take lessons from that. Uh, that's kind of the springboard. But really, the, the central verse for this morning is Ephesians 2.14, and we will get to that verse, and then I won't even bother asking you to turn uh, unless you just really want to. All the verses will be on the screen. We'll look at five or six other verses that, that prove the truth of Ephesians 2.14 in the early church, and not just in the early church, but uh, at the end of time. The reason I'm on this message today, uh, race, Baptists, and the Bible, is I've gotten a lot of questions, personally and online, about the resolution that the Southern Baptist Convention passed uh, back at the uh, annual meeting in Phoenix a few weeks ago. This is my first opportunity to stand before you on a Sunday morning and talk about it. So it, it, while it seems like, in my mind, we're a little removed from it, is it really necessary? Well, I got a question Wednesday night about it. So the questions are continuing to come. That's, that's where this message comes from, that resolution that was titled On the Anti-Gospel of Alt-Right White Supremacy. We're going to look at three different things this morning, broadly, various points in those three different things. Uh, we're going to take a brief history tour of the Southern Baptist Convention and resolutions about race. If you hate history, I'm sorry. We're going to look at some of our Southern Baptist history, maybe some you didn't know about. Uh, we're going to look at why this resolution was needed, which is going to come directly from our history as a Southern Baptist Convention. And then we're going to look at what our church's stand on race will be based on God's Word. And that's those six verses that uh, illustrate... Ephesians 2.14, and what uh, Paul said Jesus did for us. But let's start with history. I love history, so this is a fun part for me. Consider this the really long introduction to the sermon. Okay, let's, let's uh, look at it that way. Southern Baptist Convention 
was founded in 1845 over racism and slavery. Now, there were very likely other contributing factors to that, similarly to the Civil War. Uh, people talk about economics, people talk about states' rights, people talk about uh, westward expansion for the Civil War. Yes, but all three of those things all came back to slavery. The start of the Southern Baptist Convention came back to slavery. If we go back to a little further, back to 1814, there was this event called the Triennial Convention. It took all the Baptists, most Baptist churches at the time, associated in their area. And associations were really the power of Southern Baptist churches at the time. We are a part here of the Cary Baptist Association, and that's our local. But back then, you, you, you just stuck with your local stuff, because that's really where you had all the influence. They decided, though, they would have more missions opportunity, more mission strength, if they could get all the Baptists in the country, uh, Baptist churches in the country, to come together. The Triennial Convention was that. It brought together American Baptists for missions, and they started what they called the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society. Exactly what, we, in a lot of ways, what we think of when we think of the International Mission Board. It used to be the Foreign Mission Board. Uh, an opportunity for churches to pool their resources and fund missionaries. And not the cooperative program. We didn't get to the idea of the cooperative program until 1925, but this was the beginnings of that. This, this was the catalyst that eventually led to that. In 1845, or probably actually a year or two before that, it worked up to this point, the uh, American Baptist Foreign Mission Society refused to ordain slaveholders as missionaries. They, they, the Northern Baptists primarily, who had most of the power in the Triennial Convention and in the uh, ABFM, said, we're not going to ordain slaveholders to be missionaries anymore. Well, the South, Southern Baptists, left so they could own people and be missionaries. That's why we have the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, that is not a great start for our convention. On the one hand, and, and you will hear this said, and it is true, we were started for missions, and that is correct. The whole purpose, we, the whole goal of our start was to send missionaries. But the reason behind that was so we could send slave owners who were missionaries. That is vital for understanding why this year's motion against the alt-right white supremacy was was something that needed to be done even in 2017. We'll get there in a minute. What is a resolution? Some of you are wondering, what, what is that? At the Southern Baptist Convention, imagine a, a two-day business meeting, and some of y'all just died a little inside when you tried to imagine a two-day business meeting. But that's basically what the Southern Baptist Convention is every year. On the floor, we have the messengers, the people who go and vote. There's, there's preaching, there's worship, there are a lot of things interspersed, but it's a lot of business and hearing a lot of reports. But the two opportunities that, that the messengers have to speak at a, a, an annual meeting are through resolutions and through motions. And there's a time where you can get up and say, I make a motion and you can make the most outlandish motion you want to because we're Baptists and everybody gets to talk. Uh, you, you, it can ha be crazy, and the next day somebody will say, so-and-so's motion was ruled out of order. But They don't say it was crazy, but that's what everybody understands. 
Uh, and if you've ever, if you ever go to an annual meeting, you'll hear this. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I ain't making this up. If you've ever been, uh, you know what I'm talking about. The other way that we as messengers get to speak is to resolutions. Resolutions are, and we kind of have a definition here from the Southern Baptist Convention website, has traditionally been defined as an expression of opinion or concern as compared to a motion. A motion calls for action. A resolution is an expression of opinion or concern. Now, way back in the Southern Baptist Convention, 1840s, 50s, 60s, along in there, motion, uh, uh, resolutions seem, they're, very, uh, they're worded very much like motions. But uh, that's just for you know, nerds like me to, to, to look at. The way a motion gets to the floor of the convention, so somebody can vote on it, or so we can all vote on it, is somebody during the year says, this is a concern of mine, and I feel like this should be a concern of the entire Southern Baptist Convention. Therefore, I am going to draft a resolution and send it in. And resolutions, if you're not familiar with them, uh, they are a whole bunch of whereas is. Whereas we believe this as Southern Baptists, and whereas the Bible says this, and whereas we've done this in the past, and whereas we've believed this in the past, therefore be it resolved, resolution, that we now say this, and we now take this position, and we now hold this to be true, etc., etc., and we, we uh, resolve that we encourage other Baptists to do certain things. That's a resolution. So if I wanted to write a resolution, or have one at the floor of the convention, I'd write it, I'd send it off to the convention, and there's a resolutions committee that's formed every year, seven, eight, ten people from around the country that meet. They take all the resolutions, and they look at them, and they think about a number of things. Have we spoken to this issue recently? Do we need to speak to that issue again so soon if we've spoken to it recently? Do we like the wording of this resolution? Does it make sense? Is it particularly inflammatory? Does it truly represent a large number of Southern Baptists, or is this going to be a very contentious resolution? If it's going to be a very contentious resolution, is it still necessary? Because there are some we need to pass whether they're contentious or not. They look, the uh, resolutions committee looks at all those things, and then they must refer that resolution to the committee. If you're asleep yet, raise your hand. Okay, good. Uh, nobody's asleep. That's great. Uh, they refer it to the resolutions committee. I'm telling you this because I'm getting to why you heard so much in the news about this one resolution at the convention. That's why I'm explaining it to you like this. Resolutions committee then says, all right, good, we, we like it. We're going to make some changes. They have that prerogative. They might get two or three resolutions throughout the year that are very similar. So what they'll do is they'll combine all three of those using the best of each one into one resolution. They have that option. They also have the option to decline the resolution and say, nope, we, we've discussed this last year. We don't need to discuss it again. No, this is just a very poorly worded resolution. Uh, it might be a good idea, but we're not going to bother bringing it forward. They don't have a lot of time. The cutoff date, or the first day you can send a resolution is like mid-April. So they really have two months, two meetings, to look at all the resolutions and make all these decisions. All right. If the resolutions committee decides to bring it to the floor, then the messengers can say, 
I want to make an amendment to the resolution. I want to change this sentence to say this. I want to change this other to change that. Resolutions committee will say something like, we believe that is a friendly amendment. You're not hostile to what we're doing here. You're not trying to change the whole feel of the amendment. We accept that amendment, and it doesn't even go to a vote. They just, I don't believe it went to a vote. It did go to a vote. It did go to a vote to change it, but everybody votes for it because the committee said they like it. If the committee says, hmm, we don't think that's a friendly amendment, you think, we think you're trying to change something we don't agree with, they'll say it's unfriendly, and they'll say we recommend no change. The committee holds a lot of power because most people, if the committee says we like it, do it, most people are going to say, all right, committee likes it, I like it. If the committee says we don't like it, most people are going to say, mm, I don't like it, so uh, I vote no. It's generally how it works. If the committee says we're declining the resolution, we're not putting it out there, and this happens occasionally, the person who wrote the resolution can go to the microphone and say, I make a motion that we bring the resolution out for the uh, convention to vote on. In order to do that, you've got to have 60% of the convention vote to do that. I just said the committee carries a lot of power because people are saying, well, if the committee says no, they probably have a better idea than I do, so I'm going to go with them. It almost never happens that the resolution that has been declined by the committee gets voted out to the floor by the messengers. That's what happened at the convention this past year, this past June. The committee declined it. By the way, there's no explanation on why they decline things unless you ask. There usually is a little explanation as to why they'll say, somebody submitted this resolution on, uh, there were a couple on gambling this year. Somebody submitted a resolution on gambling. Well, they already had one that they had brought out to the floor, so they didn't submit this other guy's. They had two. They only submit one. So they'll say, see resolution number. Oh, they, they did this one on gambling. Okay, I, that's why they didn't do my other one. They just declined the original resolution on the alt-right white supremacy. No explanation in our little guide. So the person who wrote it said, I want to bring it out. Why, why did you not, why did you decline it? You can ask that question. And the statement, the, the, ex, the explanation by uh, the chairman of the committee was very good. He, he said there was, and there were a number of things, and I'm not going to remember, remember them all, but the, the language was very harsh, and it was, rightfully so, against white supremacy and racism, but there was language in there that they felt shouldn't have been as harsh. There was ambiguous language that said anybody who would look like, I should say, anybody who reads this resolution, it could come to the conclusion because this media outlet says if you're conservative, you're alt-right. Therefore, anybody who's conservative is racist. It was ambiguous in that sense and a number of other things. There were enough issues with that original resolution. The committee decided not to tweak it like they would normally do, but just decline it. Well, in reality, that was their first mistake, uh, considering the climate that needed to come out. And, and they made that mistake, and they admitted to that mistake later on in the convention, said, you know what, we should have rewritten it, presented a better one, but because Remember, the committee said, we declined it, and here are the reasons. 
So when the author of the resolution said, I make a motion that the messengers bring it to the floor, and the committee said, we don't think it's a good resolution, well, you can imagine what the convention did. All the messengers, most of the messengers, or at least uh, enough of them, said, if the committee said it wasn't a good one, we're good with that. And that's how they voted. And then it came to another vote later on that day. Same, uh, uh, same ending. Most of the, enough of the convention said, but the committee said they didn't like it, so we're going to go with what the committee said. Now it hits the news. Southern Baptist Convention declines to give vote against racism. That's what hit the news. It is not what happened. What happened was not racism. It was procedure. That is purely what happened. When the news got out, and not just when the news got out, it wasn't just because of the news, there was a general uproar at the convention. Wait a minute, we need to speak to this because this is an issue of the day. The resolutions committee came back, I believe it was Tuesday night, and said, look, we are going to work late into the night. We're going to write a good resolution, one that ex expresses everything that th this one did, but is not ambiguous, and that's what they did. The convention had to vote to allow them to do that. 99.9% .9 of the people in the convention voted, yes, go back and make us one. And then the next day when they presented their, re their resolution, resolution number 10, uh, against uh, alt-right alt -right white supremacy. Uh, again, 99.9% of, of the people at the convention voted for that resolution, almost unanimously. So, there we go. There, now wake up. Y'all, okay, you, we're gotten past the resolution part. Wake up. Why are we still doing it? Why in 2017... Are we still voting on race? Well, briefly, and I really am, y'all, I'm flying as far as I'm concerned. 1845, since 1845, there have been over uh, 40 resolutions relating to race. And I have every one of them right here that I could find. And there may be some more. But since 1845, over 40 resolutions relating to race at Southern Baptist Conventions. From 1845 to 1937, they were primarily about mission work among the black population. We need to reach out to the black population. Even as slaveholders, they understood we need to take the gospel, make sure we're sharing the gospel with our slaves. It's a great step. Uh, in 1903, I just want to pull out a couple of resolutions for you to think about. In 1903, there was a resolution that asked for changing the name from Southern Baptist Convention. And the reason that it did said, we're, we're reaching by our own documents. We want to reach the entire U.S. And the reasons for our name, Southern Baptist Convention, no longer exist. We need to change the name. This has been talked about a number of times over the years, but it's actually the first time we see it that I saw it was 1903. 1939, there was a resolution against lynching. Um, very uh, prevalent all over the U.S., but uh, certainly in the South. In that resolution, it also called for correction of inequalities based on race. And in this resolution, 1939, this was the first acknowledgement of a race problem. Uh, first acknowledgement of racial animosity or inequalities that existed. 1939, I'm not great at math, I think that's 74 years after the start of the convention. 
if I do my math right. From 1940, now the slide's going to say 1938, I, I had to correct that. From 1940 to 1995, the resolutions were primarily about race relations. Uh, there was a, a change in tone after this acknowledgement of a problem, specifically among Southern Baptists. In 1946, uh, the resolution, there was a resolution, and I'm just taking out quotes, and you can see a progression here. Uh, about a resolution about our brotherly relationship with three and a half million Negro Baptists. In 1961, a resolution spoke that every man has dignity and worth before the Lord. In 1978, a resolution said, quote, we seek to purge ourselves and our society from all forms of racism. In 1982, there was a, re a resolution specifically against the KKK. And in 1989, there was a resolution that said, we repent of any past bigotry. You see the progression? You see how we went from a slave-holding convention in 1845 to 1989, repenting of past bigotry? But there's still an elephant in the room until 1995. 1995 was the, uh, what do they call it, sesquicentennial, 150-year anniversary of the convention. And the SBC, by resolution, finally apologized for, for it, the, the reason for its own existence, which were racism and slavery. 1995, 150 years after the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention, we apologized for it. Since that time, eight resolutions have been uh, passed on race, including resolution number 10 this year. Now, Michael, why do we still do that? Why do we still pass resolutions on race? We have to remember as Southern Baptists, we were founded on racism and slavery. And that is a stain we can never fully remove. I contend we don't want to. And I'll contend that some other time. I don't have time this morning. I don't want to remove that stain because I want people who assume that stain to be able to look at us today, look at our resolutions, and say, yes, that's who we were, but that's not who we are now. I want to wear that like a scarlet letter. Yes, we were founded on racism, but look at us today. We have come so far, and we know we have somewhere to go still, but we are working on that. We, we want to be better than we were yesterday, 50 years ago, 150 years ago. So since we were founded on racism and slavery, this resolution was necessary because anytime anything ever looks and smells like racism in the Southern Baptist Convention, people are going to uh, pounce on it. And that's what they did. As soon as this resolution didn't pass, everybody said, oh, look, Southern Baptists are still racist. They can't even pass a, a resolution on, on, on white supremacy. No, procedure, not racism. Then we passed the resolution, clearly. But we have to respond. And the alt-right puts out feelers, the alt-right white supremacists put out feelers and small connections saying, oh, we're Christian. Oh, we're, we're, we're just like other Christian groups, like Southern Baptists. Some of them claim to be Southern Baptists. So media hears that, they pounce on it. Oh, look, the alt-right... White supremacists, supremacists, they're Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists are racist. 
So Southern Baptists have to always be on guard, have to always be aware. Why? Well, we have a missionary calling, and it hurts our mission when I go to someone and say, y'all, this is why people that start Southern Baptist churches in the North particularly, but in the South too, often don't put Baptist in their name. Why? Because if somebody in Massachusetts sees Southern Baptist Church, they think, that's a racist white church. Why? Because of 1845. Doesn't matter what happened in 1995 or 2017. It does, because then we can say, no, look, look, see? We're, we're, we're changing. We're doing better. So if it looks like racism in the SBC, we have to snuff it out. And that's what people were doing uh, with this resolution. Now then, there's the introduction to the sermon. Um, what does the Bible say? Well, the, the Bible says, and the, the, the later leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, beginning probably earlier than 1939, probably on back to 1903, but certainly uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, up to 95 and to now, we understand that we cannot base our ethic on Jesus in the Bible and get to racism. You can't do it. Though, even though uh, the SBC and others have tried, you cannot begin here and get to racism. Said another way, racism has no place in a Christ-like life. No place. Now, let me tell you this, and you'll see it on the screen because I want you to know I mean it. Racism is not the unpardonable sin. But racism is against your sanctification as a Christian. It is against your sanctification just as lust or pornography, murder, lying, adultery, hatred, greed, gossip, uh, slander, uh, just you know, any other sin, it is against your sanctification. Therefore, it is one of those things that preachers should preach against. Here I am. Racism cannot go with Christianity any more than those other sins that I mentioned. Uh, let me put it a couple of different ways for you. The burning cross and the rugged cross cannot coexist. I'm going to wait for that amen, because if you don't, I'm going to just pack up now. The rugged cross and the burning cross cannot coexist. If you didn't like that one, the cross of the Klan and the cross of Christ are incompatible. Those aren't the same crosses. One is sin, and the other one bore my Savior and my sins. Racism and Christianity do not go together. My promise to you, though, from the Bible is that you can be delivered from the sin of racism as surely as you can be delivered from any other sin. I know this. I know this personally. I know this in my own life. In my own heart. I am a child of central Mississippi in the 1970s. You, you might be aware that Mississippi finally voted to accept the 13th Amendment a handful of years ago. 13th Amendment abolished slavery. I grew up in the midst of racism. 
in, in, in the 70s and 80s, Mississippi was still Jim Crow South. Uh, I grew up in Livingston Parish, not just, just a few years after I moved from Mississippi, getting Klan propaganda thrown into our driveway. That was 1990, 91, 92. But y'all, I took that Klan propaganda and went, hmm, because of the racism in my heart, because of what I believed, and because of the sinfulness of that racism. So I know what it is to be delivered from racism. I know what it is to be unlike some family members because they don't understand why you're not still racist. Uh, to be called liberal. <laughs> because you're not a racist anymore. I know what it is to be delivered. So I know it can happen. But even if I had not experienced it, even if you don't believe my testimony of it, now let's look at Scripture. Ephesians 2, 14. Paul said, For he, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. This is talking about Jews and Gentiles. Jesus brought together Jew and Gentile. Primarily, he is talking about those inside the covenant and outside the covenant. But we know, just reading our Bibles, that that relationship between those inside the covenant and outside the covenant, Jews and Gentiles, was one of racism, arrogance, superiority, and condescension. The Jews thought they were special not just because they had the law, not just because of a special relationship with God, not just because of the temple, but because they were Jewish. Now, they got there because God had chosen them. God had chosen them to be a missionary society to all the world, to Jew and Gentile alike. But what they ended up doing was elevating their Jewishness, elevating their ethnicity above all of it. And then we get to some very disappointing places in the history of the Jews. Jesus, Paul says, brings all those disparate groups together. He brings Jew and Gentile together. He brings races that have experienced historical animosity together. Jew and Palestinian come together. Black and white come together. German and Russian, if you know your European history, come together. Indian and Pakistani, if you know your South Asian uh, history, come together. Any historically opposed groups come together. Why? Because they have a summit in some country somewhere and sign a piece of paper? No, because the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down every barrier. That's why they come together. So people who said, I have hated you all my life, come to Christ and say, now I can do nothing but love you because Jesus loves you and you are created in the image of God. That's what salvation does and the next verses that we're going to talk about show the effects of Ephesians 2.14. When God said, through Paul, Jesus has broken down those barriers, we get to see it over and over and over throughout Scripture. And I promise I'm going to fly through these Scriptures, so hold on and listen in a hurry. Acts 2.5, 9-11, through 11, 
We preached on that the last, or I preached on that the last time I was here on Sunday morning, uh, or to, to preach on Sunday morning. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. Evangelism to every person. There's a map that you're going to see here in just a second that's going to give you an idea of where all those people came from. All over the known world is where these people came from. Off as far away as Rome, that would be the furthest spot, North Africa, uh, Saudi Arabia, what we would call it now. There were varying shades of skin color from light, probably in Rome, to dark there in Cyrene. Varying shades all the way across, but y'all, in case you weren't aware of this, predominantly the color at the first church service, the first uh, revival had in the Bible, the first uh, crusade, so to speak, when the Holy Spirit came, the predominant color was dark, not light. And some of each of those that were there from every country got saved. So even at the beginning of the church, the dawn of the church that Paul missed out on, he writes later in Ephesians and says, that's why Jesus came to bring all these groups together that didn't look like each other, didn't act like each other, didn't believe the same things, and surely hated each other. By the way, Jesus wasn't white. I didn't know if you knew that or not, but he wasn't. On the left is a lot of our pictures. On the right is the average Jewish male at the, the time of the Bible. Jesus looked more like the guy on the right than on the left. This may change your prayers some when you're envisioning Jesus, but that's what he most likely looked like. Not exactly that. Those were his features. The guy on the left, Jesus wasn't from Norway, y'all. He just wasn't. Acts 8, 14. We're moving on through the history of the church. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Notice now we're talking about Samaritans. The Samaritans were, in, uh, were uh, considered ethnically impure by the Jews. They were half-breeds, they called them. The Samaritans were the result of Assyria taking the northern kingdom into captivity back in 722 B.C. But what they did was they took everybody that they could to their country, to Assyria. They sent Assyrians into the northern kingdom, and they said, basically, if we can't kill the Jewishness out of them and can't export the Jewishness out of them, we will breed the Jewishness out of them. So that they intermarried so that there would be no recollection, no, uh, no result, no residue of Jewishness in that area. That was Samaria. That was the Samaritans. That's who they were. So the Jews, no, no, they're ethnically impure. We're going to talk about some Old Testament folks. It's not like the Jews were pure either, but let's just go with what they thought for a minute. The apostles were just a little surprised about the conversion of the Samaritans. If you, if you read Acts, and we're going to talk about this, and we talked about it in Sunday school this morning. Uh, we're hinting at it. They didn't know the gospel was going to go to Gentiles. It's kind of a duh statement because the Great Commission says uh, make disciples 
of all nations, all ethnicities, everybody, not just Jews, but anyway, they were still shocked. They were surprised by the conversion of this half-breed, mutt group of people. Acts 8, 27. So he got up and went. Philip is who we're talking about now. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He, would, he had come to worship in Jerusalem. Here we have a black African man, Jewish by religion, but ethnically a Gentile, who received Christ and was immediately baptized into the church and then took that gospel. Ethiopia still has a large Christian community. Took that gospel, probably because of this guy, maybe a few other missionaries, and spread the gospel in his home country. So now we've gone from Samaritans, just dark, to Ethiopians, really dark, and now true Gentiles, not even a little bit Jewish. Acts 13.1. Now the church at Antioch, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Nagar, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a close friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Simeon, called Black. Nagar is just Latin for black. Simeon, called Black, was a prophet and or teacher in the church. Lucius of North African uh, Cyrene, that's where the country was, near Libya, was possibly black, but definitely African, extremely dark. He was a prophet and or teacher in the first church, the first place that they were called Christians. My point is that the church has been ethnically diverse from the beginning. We have to make a choice to segregate the church. That was never God's intention. Briefly, Old Testament examples of blacks in the Old Testament. Cush fathered Nimrod in, Nimrod in Genesis 10. Cush means black. They settled in Mesopotamia. Nimrod did. Abraham, who came from Mesopotamia, was very possibly of mixed race lineage. Joseph's wife, Asenath, was very possibly black. Mother of Manasseh and Ephraim, two of the tribes of Israel. Abraham, the father of Israel. Moses' wife was a Cushite. Cush means black. As a matter of fact, Miriam and Aaron got in trouble for mocking his wife, mocking Moses for marrying a black woman. Possibly Bathsheba was black. Uriah was probably black. Therefore, Solomon was half Jewish, half black. Half dark brown, half really brown however you want to look at it. Why am I focusing right at this moment on blacks and white racism when there's plenty of racism to go around? And there is. Had there been a resolution at that convention against alt-left violence, alt-left uh, um, racism, I'd have voted on that too. I'd have, I would have agreed with that. But why do we as Southern Baptists have to be ever conscious of the racism in our church, particularly toward black people, because, one, there were very few of what we would call whites in the Bible. Uh, they were mostly browns. Secondly, the South didn't enslave light brown Hisp Hispanics. We didn't enslave pale yellow Asians. We didn't enslave dark brown Middle Easterners or pasty white Europeans. We enslaved black Africans. That's, that's, the, that's the trouble today. 
That's most of the racism today between black and white. This SBC split off so they could own black Africans. So we have a history. We have a lineage that regardless of how much you personally may disagree with it, may disavow it, may hate everything about the racist, hist racist history, it does not change the fact that anyone looking in and only hearing from a couple of sources only sees Southern Baptist slavery. So at every point, at every opportunity, I, as a Southern Baptist, I, as a Christian, will vote, stand up for, speak for, or speak against, depending on the issue, anything that says, no, we disavow racists, or yes, we are against racism. Any opportunity, I will take that, because, Revelation 7-9, last verse we're going to look at. After this, I looked. And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Nation, tribe, people, and language. You cannot get more distinct than that statement. You cannot get more diverse ethnically, racially, or in any way than that statement. Every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Every shade, shape, and group will stand together at the throne. If you hold hatred in your heart today toward a person because they don't look like you, I'm, I'm kind of a mean cuss sometimes. I hope that shade of person is standing on all four sides of you in heaven so you can see what God saw, a creation of His, in His image, who trusted His Son, who died for your sins, and got you there, and them there. If Jesus' kingdom is now, then we should look like heaven now. Jesus said, I bring, my kingdom has come, it is here. Therefore, we, the church, the representatives of his kingdom, the ambassadors of Jesus to the rest of the world, should always look like the kingdom that he has set up. And the kingdom that he has set up is not a kingdom of white people or yellow people or brown people or black people. It is a kingdom of people who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to look like every Sunday morning, and if it is all possible on our part. That's what we should be. So to wrap up, and I mean it, there is no place for racism in the Christian faith. There is no place for it at all. And I know that we will have a ways to go, some of us. Some of us have come a ways in repenting and recanting a racist past. And I, I applaud you, and I understand your your. In ability, I understand the, the, uh, the cognitive dissonance that it creates in your life. I understand it more than you may have thought before I started preaching this morning. But there can be no place for racism in the Christian faith. There is no subordinate or inferior race in the kingdom. Y'all, we have come a long way. 
I know that. But that doesn't mean we're done. And that doesn't mean we can say, oh, we apologize for that, we're done. No, there are still residual effects today that we must embrace, but not in a good way. Own and say, yes, I know that residual effect, and we will speak against it. We will pass a resolution against it. I will work through the blood of Jesus and his sanctifying Holy Spirit to not be like that myself. As Christians, we must strive to eliminate racism in our own lives, work on our own sanctification. As Christians, we must work to abolish racism. It's more than, well, I'm not prejudiced. It's more than that. I'm glad you're not. But it's more than that. As Southern Baptists, we must work especially hard to abolish the appearance of racism. Is it fair? I'm not here to talk about fair. I'm here to talk about what is and what was. And what was has a negative effect on what is. Therefore, we as Southern Baptists must work especially hard to abolish that appearance till the day we die. And I'm fine with that. And one last reminder, Jesus was a dark-skinned Middle Easterner. And he died for this pasty, fat white boy. And I'm so glad he did. And he died for you pasty people too. And he died for you that are a little darker. And he died for hopefully the people that will hear me preach this message that are a lot darker. He died for everyone. He died for all of your sins, including the sin of racism. This morning I want you to know Jesus died for you. First of all, I want you to know that no matter your race, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your background, your social status of any or any of that, no matter your sinful history, Jesus died for you. You can experience salvation today. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of those sins is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can experience salvation today. Repent of those sins. Turn from those sins. Turn from that life. Repent and believe. That's what the Bible says. That's who I was. That's not who I want to be anymore. I acknowledge my sinfulness, that that is who I am, but I do not want to be that. I turn to Christ. God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, gave us a way out, gave us to something to turn to when we repent. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you must do today is call on the name of the Lord. Pray a prayer, sure, but your prayer can be as short as Jesus saves me. It can be as long as a delineation of all the ways you have failed him. It can begin with an understanding like we heard about this week at youth camp. I don't deserve that. <laughs> You're right. But he gave it to you anyway. But this morning, call on the name of the Lord. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, but you will continually be saved. Believer, struggling with a sin, whether it's lust or pornography or gossip or slander or greed or adultery or racism, he will continually save you. He will work your sanctification if you will turn those things over to him. I know. I know. 
because that is me. What is your response this morning? What are you going to do? How will you respond to the message that God is giving? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you save us from our sin and you do not leave us in our sin. You provide a way out. God, thank you that you have done a miraculous work in our heart. You have done what no treaty, no summit could do. You have brought together two groups that were opposed. Ultimately, the two groups that were opposed were you and us. And you brought us together. If you can do that through the blood of your Son, then you can bring together those who hate each other. God, you can work a miracle. Begin with the miracle of salvation this morning with someone who has not accepted your Son as Savior, who has not repented and believed. But Lord, continue the miracle of salvation by saving someone from not just their sin, but their sinfulness today as you continue to sanctify them. God, move in this place this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So my challenge to you, my, my invitation for you, is to join the mixed-race family. Join the kingdom that expresses the diversity of God, his, his love of color, his love of creativity. Join the group, the family, that says, all I see is your heart. Should say, all I see is your heart. You need to accept Christ this morning, repent and believe. Maybe you need to be baptized. You've trusted Christ. You, Bible school, youth camp, 30 years ago at a revival. But you never got baptized. This morning, you want to come to me and say, Michael, I want to be baptized. I want to do the public profession of faith. Walking down the aisle is not a public profession of faith. That is your public profession of faith, and that's what you want to do. Talk to me now. Talk to me afterwards. Maybe you just need to give God some sins. You need to come to the altar. And you don't need to worry about the fact that somebody's going to be sitting there and say, ooh, that racist needs to pray. You need to worry about the fact your relationship with God right now is clouded because of a sinful act you will not let go of. So don't let anybody's opinion of your, your confession stop your confession. You don't have to come to the rail. You can do it there. But this morning, I believe every one of us has something that we can give to God because of the message of his word this morning. Whatever that decision is, if you'd like me to pray with you, I'd love to do it. If you'd like to pray on your own, that's awesome too. But let's stand, and as we sing, let's do business with God.